1: hello everyone and welcome once again to so very wrong about games a board gaming podcast about board games i'm your co-host mark bigney Back despite all contrary wishes. And with me as always is my co-host Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you? I'm doing all right. I just wanted to thank everyone for their support during the week off. I've received lots of words of support, especially from patrons And one of the things that I found quite striking is a number of patrons reached out and said, how much do I have to pledge to make sure that you never, ever record again? Which I thought was a strange request. Uh, And I'll tell them the same thing that I said in the context of our discussion of NFTs. We can have the same policy with respect to this as we do with NFTs. Send us $100,000 and we'll just uh, stop recording.
0: How's that? That sounds good. Yeah. 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 I'd like to report that I finally got some lunch. Like you kept sending me messages daily saying, let's do lunch, let's do lunch. And I finally got lunch, so... You kept standing me up. It's it, it's a California joke, Mark.
1: <laughs> no, it's a simple misunderstanding. I I said you were out to lunch. There's a slight difference in ah, nuance. Yeah.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So we're going
1: gotcha. to be talking about board games today. We're going to talk about our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. We're going to talk about our games played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter, and then finally our topic, which is going to be event gaming. This is one of those hypothetical, wish-it-could-happen, sort of I-remember-when topics But I'm feeling nostalgic, so there you have it. So, our Eurus this week is Undaunted Normandy. Walker, what do
0: you have to say about Undaunted Normandy a year on? I have to say this is good timing, seeing as the expansion is about to hit out. They're getting a big reinforcement deck, and it looks like the battles are much, much bigger from some screenshots that I saw. And uh, Undaunted Normandy is a fantastic deck building, very quick. World War II, at least in the iterations that are out now is a skirmishy game, but in what's to come seems like a little more grandiose encompassing game, but lots of different units, nice quick card play, uh, crunchy decisions like which cards to get and when, which units to sacrifice to take the objectives. It's a very much game where it's driven by the objectives. Cause if you just try to endurance it out, it is not going to work out. And that's, the introduction of those scenarios is what brings it above War Chest. There was a little bit of discussion about War Chest lately, and and blah blah blah. You're not playing it right. But <laughs> the scenarios are what cleans up that end game attrition silliness, right? Because you need to get the objectives, and if you just try to burn out your enemy, you're not going to do it fast enough. They're going to take those objectives, and they're going to win. Still a fantastic game. We'll play any time huge fan of undaunted
1: normandy huge fan of undaunted north africa eagerly awaiting reinforcements i'm such a sucker walker anytime there's an expansion which involves a bigger box that will hold everything and they're not selling it in a big box format where you send them 500 dollars and they resell you things they already have they're just here have this expansion it has room for all your bits yay it's gonna have multiplayer rules solitaire rules anyway very very much looking for forward to Undaunted reinforcements. I would merely add one thing. I agree with you that the elements of the victory conditions of Undaunted elevate it above that sort of grindingly attritional endgame in War Chest. But additionally, I just find the way that cards cycle in and out and the way that casualties are handled makes it so that you don't have that same concern in Undaunted as you do in Warchest. I think it's a marvelous design, incredibly accessible. I'll just remind you that the reason why we reviewed Undaunted when we did was because it was just the start of lockdown, the first lockdown in Ontario, and I was so sick of having to relearn how to play in this bizarre physics engine known as Tabletop Simulator. And I wanted to think, is there something that we could play where we could knock out a whole bunch of games really quickly, both because the game is quick and because it's not component-heavy and still something that's fun to talk about a fun game so I can ease into this terrifying world of online gaming? And Undaunted is what I settled on, and I've been happy to play it in person since then. Marvelous game, Marvelous system. Looks like it's going to be supported for years to come. Huge fan. And Undaunted Normandy, as well as all the other Undaunted games, is by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, two incredibly talented designers. I recommend all their work put up by Osprey Games in 2019. And that is the game we reviewed exactly
0: one year ago.
1: Yes, because the pandemic has been one year old.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> Mark. Yes. We played some games in the last two weeks. I played a lot of games. Are you ready to buckle up? Buckle in. Here we go. What did you play, Mark? I played a game of Rift Force. Rift Force is
1: a two-player game by Carlo Bartolini, but by One More Time Games uh, distributed by Capstone Games here in North America. And it was highly recommended to me partially because some people said that it had a vaguely knitzia like feel, which is high praise for any game, two-player card games especially. Rift Force is a game where at the start of it you draft four different suits out of a possible pool of 10 and so you and your opponent each have four of the 10 possible suits and then you play kind of sort of an area control game but not really. You get points for kills, you get points in some cases for having pieces in a location when your opponent doesn't have any. And mostly it's about leveraging special powers and hand management. The hand management is interesting in that whenever you deploy cards or activate cards, you can only ever activate or deploy those cards that match suit or number. So you're always looking at the available things that you can activate or play and worrying about how to make best use of both tempo and what's in your hand. And th- that I think is where a lot of the interesting decision making comes. The special powers are cool and And there is, I think, room for some combos. I've only played once, and it definitely looked like there were definitely some combos that you could set up that were a good idea to exploit. I was not in a position to do that, though, because I am not what you would call what's-the-word clever. And so I think future plays are definitely going to show whether this has the depth that I hope that it does. As I say, the tempo considerations in hand management were already engaging. And I liked leveraging the powers. But if there's really room for clever exploitation of how those powers interact, then I'm going to be much more enthusiastic than I already am. Dr. Contra played with me and she thought that the game was very good as well and so i'm probably going to have an opportunity to return back to it it w- one minor note though in terms of the initial introduction of the game it did feel a little knitsy like in that again tempo was very important it was a very very simple rules explanation but nonetheless had a lot of variety from the card effects one way it in which it did not feel like a Kinesia card game, is that you never desperately wanted to pass. I mention this only, not not as a criticism of Rift Force, but I just find it fascinating that when it comes to Kinesia card games, almost invariably, you desperately wish you could pass in some context. You know, think about those times in Battle Line or in Lost Cities where you have to commit, but you don't want to. And that tension really defines for me a lot of the genius of Kinesia card games. You don't have that in Rift Force. If you could activate to the m- fullest extent every turn, you absolutely would. And that's fine, but uh, just a little bit of point of comparison, because if I'm going to say that something feels like a Knizia game, I want to be precise, lest I besmirch the fine name of Knizia. So, Rift Force was very enjoyable, very quick, very approachable. I'm looking forward to future plays. Again, by Carla Bartoloni, put up by One More Time Games.
0: Mark, there's a game coming out called Arc Nova, designed by Mathis Wiggy, and put out by Capstone Games. It is has a feel of all sorts of very major games that are out so far it's like they mash them together it has a very terraforming Mars feel where you're collecting you're making a zoo what is what you're doing in Ark Nova and all the animals have all these different symbols on them and after you get them out into play they will aid you in getting other animals out so you're constantly looking at all the different symbology on the cards and it's like okay well this one needs three forests and this one needs you know have three other animals from Africa and this one needs so you're like building the zoo out and building this tableau. Meanwhile, you're also building habitats to put these animals in, and there's all sorts of victory condition cards that you're trying to score out. Lots of things going on. It was very interesting. I only got to play it the once, so I'm interested in going back to it. The game was, it took two hours to play. It's a very long game. I'm not sure if it's worth the length, but another play will will solidify that. And we'll see how it goes. That is Arc Nova. How many bears do you get to put out? Quite a few bears. I had a, actually, I had a card mark that gave <laughs> me victory points every time someone put out a bear. Excellent. So I, I was, I was happy to get more bears. And it had this very interesting sort of scoring system. Say if, say if the, the victory point track went up to a hundred, one marker would uh, start at a hundred and another marker would be at zero. And you got these sort of green victory points on the top, and it would move the marker two spaces every time, roughly, and then every time you got victory points, it would move zero, and when they met, anyone's two markers met, the game would end, and that would put whoever ended the game at zero points, and then they would hopefully get some more points during that turn, because it would have another round, and then everyone would try to either, you know, get their their markers to meet to be at zero or exceed. And then there was be a little bit of end game scoring. So in the end, you know, you didn't have ridiculous points like 300, 500, like some rail game that we know it was more like 13, 13 cough points.
1: (laughs) Mentioning no walkers in particular.
0: No mentioning no particular scores in particular.
1: (laughs) That was arc Nova Walker you want to you wanna talk about big scores? Do you want to talk about big scores, Walker?
0: That's That to be a big score. Do
1: you want to talk about big scores? and you want to talk about rail games? I heard about rail games. Apparently, all that people want to talk about is rail games. Trains, Walker. Trains. You want to talk about trains? Trains? I
0: want to hear tracks. Tell me about tracks. Do you want to hear about
1: endgame scores in excess of 5,500, Walker?
0: It, oh, my Lord. It's
1: time. It's time. I played 1846, Walker. I played 1846, The Race for the Midwest.
0: Oh, my lord.
1: Not not these baby train games, Walker. Not these little goo goo gaga sort of Russian railroads, ticket to ride, cube rails nonsense.
0: No, these introductory baby games. Gotcha. You were hardcore.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. F- thrown into the deep end <laughs> with a large cement block tied to my ankles. I was thrown into the deep end. So I played 1846. This was being hosted by trade gamers. I played with honest to goodness Train gamers. These are the kind of people that will go to a convention and play nothing but different 18xx games back to back to back. I'm going to start with some jokes that are actually serious, and then I'm going to talk about the game. The thing that I find striking about 18xx games is they're almost like a caricature of what people say about consim gamers to a certain extent. Consim gamers, the joke is that, you know, they they care very deeply about these weird little corner cases, these crummy little rules that only exist because this certain specific thing happened in history this one time, and so the game has an entire subsection of rules to devote to why this actually happened. And actually, I think this this comment is more aptly directed towards train gamers, because after all, we're talking about a series of games, and and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of 18xx games, and they all have these weird little geographic and economic peculiarities because of some stock offering that some company made in 1872. And nobody at the table, generally speaking, seems to care about the economic implications of that. I mean, they remember the rule because they're train gamers, and train gamers remember these things. But they don't really care about the overall implications of what that meant for the stock market or what have you. Meanwhile, when I play successors and, you know, you care about how the silver shields works or how Heracles works or whatever. I mean, I I care about the historical implications of that, but sometimes I get the impression that these train gamers, eh, not so much. Anyway, so having slighted a whole group of people that are never, never inclined to give me crap on the internet, allow me to move on to talk about the actual game. There's a lot about the 18xx series that I love. You know, you and I are Imperial fans, Walker, and that central conceit, that central dynamic intention of having an entity whose success or failure you care about but only insofar as you're invested in them and only insofar as you can exploit them for your own game that's at the heart and soul of every 18xx game The trick is there's a whole bunch of different kinds of parameters that you can exploit or change when you're riffing on the central formula. The central formula, of course, invented by Francis Tresham in his seminal 1829, and then iterated in 1830, and then he did 1825, and then, you know, off to the races. Everyone else does all their own 18xx versions. 1846 is regarded by some as a good introductory 18xx game. The reason why is because typically at the start of an 18xx game, you have a big open auction for a whole bunch of companies. In 1846, you don't have that. Instead, you have a draft for a whole bunch of opening stuff. And that's a little bit easier to ease into. It's like, how much is this thing worth? I don't know. Is it worth $20? Is it worth $500? Who's to say? Whereas in 1846, you just take the card and it's like, it costs 40 bucks. You want to buy it for 40 Yes, no. That is an easier thing for new players to make. The reason why some people do not recommend 1846 for new players, and this definitely came up in our play, is it just has a number of weird corner edge bits that are not easily anticipatable on your first play, or indeed, sometimes even in your second or third. But this is common to many an 18xx game. You know, again, in my head, the paradigmatic example, of this is the Birkenhead connection in brass. Again, these layers of rules for a chromey historical oddity that may or may not matter for the people at the table, but definitely matters to the play state. In 1846, this is compounded by the fact that in 18xx games, there are lots of initial state limitations that will only become apparent later on in the game. Whether it's your share limitation, you can only have a certain number of stocks in the course of the game. This is built into many an 18xx game, and it's one of those arbitrary gamey things that makes the game work. How many tokens a given company has? You may be running a company walker, and it's the start of the game. Do you want to plop a a, a token there in that city? Well, the company you're running has three tokens available to it over the course of the game. The other company has five tokens available to it. So, better be careful at where you plop your tokens! Now, granted... you're in control of which company you're in and which company you're not in, but these are the weird little things that, you know, in turn six, you look back and say, I lost the game in turn two. That's fine. Many a splatter game works the same way. This is only a mild criticism. The trick about an 18xx game, though, is that there's another sort of spectrum of comparison is whether or not it is a run-good-companies game or whether it's more of a stock manipulation game. This is a bit of a false dichotomy. All games, to a certain extent, are a bit of both, but I am told that 1846 airs a little bit towards the run-good companies. And then what you're doing is you're making root connections. Weird, strange root connections and manipulating geography and knowing where to put your tokens and knowing how the tracks are going to evolve. Which involves two things that are not necessarily a fault of the game system, but definitely rub me the wrong way. Fault the first. Sometimes the connection you want to make isn't possible because the game has run out of that shape of track. The track component limitation is very much a thing that you have to navigate in games of 18xx. It's never something that I've appreciated, liked, or wanted other games to emulate. The other problem is, is that it becomes a spatial puzzle. And as people who have listened to this podcast before know, I'm not really into spatial puzzles. I can look at the board and start squinting and realizing that really what I want to do is I want to get to Chicago, but I, in order to get to Chicago, I need to get, navigate this mess of interlocking spaghetti straps of rails and... Ugh. I start to tune out, and then what I do is I lean over to my train game friends and say, how do I get to Chicago? And they say, well, if you build this track and upgrade this other track, you can get to Chicago. And I say, thank you, train gamers. You are much smarter than I am. And then I do what they tell me to. Now, this is not a way to win, obviously, but one does not seek to win your first game of 18xx after a 10-year absence from the genre. (laughs) This is a lot of words. Do you have any questions for me about 18xx, Walker?
0: (laughs) I do not. I'm I'm very proud of you, Mark. You you stepped right in. To the 18XX genre, I today was starting to learn uh, Imperial Steam, which is just as as chunky as it sounds. It doesn't have the 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 stock the huge stock market that I see these 18XX do, but it is an awfully crunchy game. Well, that's one of the reasons why
1: I wished that I, I, I kind of regret having selected 1846. And this is my, my call. I asked for 1846 in part because it's signed by Tom Lehman and Tom Lehman really knows what he's doing. He's a very, very talented guy. And because of its lack of an initial auction, 1846 is characterized by a relatively stable stock market. You don't really see a whole lot of predatory acquisitions. You know, I start buying stock, and therefore the person who currently owns the company has to decide whether they want to double down, or liquidate, or get out. There's no, there's practically no ability to dump a failing company onto a competitor, as you see in other 18xx games. Now... If I had played one of those versions of 18xx games, would I be then complaining about the ripple effects of small economic decisions and not being able to foresee their consequences in very much the same way that I'm complaining now about 1846 saying you can't get to Chicago because that rail doesn't exist anymore? Probably, but I'm inclined to complain. So, 1846 was a fascinating experience. I'm very, very glad that I played it, and I can totally see why train gamers go off the deep end and start agonizing over all the tiny differences between initial stock offerings and when trains get upgraded and various oddities of the income track and where the various bumps are and memorizing all the ways that the different track limitations can be exploited while getting in and around Toledo or whatever other city you care about in this particular 18xx games. But
0: I knew I should have used that right turn track at Albuquerque.
1: Exactly right, Walker. (laughs) Little did we know that Bugs Bunny was an 18xx gamer. Here's the thing. I like my games to be a little bit more historically grounded in this way and a little bit more historically evocative. Do I care about rail expansion in the 19th century? No. If I did, I'd probably get more out of the games. As it is, I care a little bit more about other historical periods that are best explored through concepts. Furthermore, I like my economic models to be a little bit more dynamic. I think I would have preferred if it felt a little bit more like Imperial in the sense that I cared about having to make sure that my holdings were either stable or fluid, as the case may be. As it stood, the way the game worked, this may be an oddity, people had their initial companies, and that was that, and then they ran their initial companies. We bought stocks in other people's companies, sure, but more or less there was a one-to-one correspondence between a company and the player that controlled it. And I thought that that led to just emphasizing all the elements of the game that I do not appreciate and made it a very sort of stable experience. It wasn't over long, it was only about two and a half to three hours, which given the fact that there was a total monkey at the table in the form of me is eminently reasonable and that's another, I, I suppose, virtue of 1846 as an intro game. I'm told that the next 18xx games that I should try that might be more to my liking is 1856. I've already forgotten what time period 1856 corresponds to. Normally on this podcast we look things up so we can speak with some degree of rigor. At this point though it's comical the extent to which the various 18xx games are literally an alphabet soup. So <laughs> we'll just lean into that. So that was my experience with 1846, the race for the Midwest. We played on the GMT version, but of course, being that my host was a legit train gamer, all the available components have been upgraded. We're not just talking poker chips. We're talking about wooden tokens replacing the cardboard tokens. We're talking plastic trays for the rails so that of course I should have seen that the rail, the rail chip that I wanted wasn't there anymore. The fault was entirely my own walker. Of course. Remember, if you're a train gamer and you object to anything that I've said about any train games, send all your comments to support at aircanada.com.
0: But not yet, because here's some more trained game stuff. Let's get all the train games out of the way. Oh, no. Railways of the World, a.k.a. Railroad Tycoon. This is now on Board Game Arena, and this is a game that has actually survived my culling over and over again, mostly because it is a six-player game. And it does not play too terribly at six, because you just do a few actions, which are very simple, and it's on to the next player. The end of round sequence is very short and you and the more players there are the quicker the city is empty and the sooner the game ends because that's what is how the game ends once because there's the you populate the whole north america with a bunch of cubes different colored cubes and you're transporting them around after you've built the track and you're scoring points which increases your income but then eventually it starts to decrease again it's you know hits this midpoint and then starts to decrease, so you have to make sure your engine is going. I think it's a great, it's nothing like an 18xx game, but you get to build track, and it looks very pretty when it's all done, and uh Railroad Tycoon. Have you ever played Age of Steam, Walker? Yes, I have. Long ago.
1: I ask because Railways of the World slash Railroad Tycoon was one of the many sort of hack jobs that Glenn Drover did on existing designs to make them ma- match uh, IPs. it was the same thing as conquest of the empire which was struggle of empires turning into a, a vaguely Roman theme and Rail, railroad tycoon was basically age of steam with some of the rough edges filed off.
0: Yes yeah, so Railways of the World is a Martin Wallace and like you said Glenn Glen Drover and published by Eagle Griffin Games. And I'll, I'll I'll throw this one in as well because we're talking spatial puzzles. Bonus Mark, round. I got to play a game I got to play a game called Llama Land. This is another designed by Phil Walker Harding, and you're going to love this game. More tetrado pieces, Mark. <laughs> There's what you're doing in this one, though. It has two very interesting hooks in this game. You're on your turn. You're, you're grabbing a. One of diff- five different shapes, and you're adding it to your own personal board. And either you're increasing the foundation or you're starting to put them on top of existing pieces. And whatever you cover up, you get. So you get, you're getting some resources because you're trying to buy these prized llamas. And they, they're like either four corn or four cacao or four potatoes. And so when you buy a llama card, they're worth, uh, in decreasing amounts of victory points. So the first ones are 12 and they go down to eight or something like that. You bring the card over. It is now your card. But then you have to take a llama, a wooden llama, and it has to go on your board in an open field. So you can see where this starts to cause problems because now you can't cover that square where you've put the llama. So that's kind of cool. Cool. So like I said, Mark, you're either placing a foundation or you're building up on top. And so if you're building a foundation piece, obviously you're not getting resources because you're not covering anything up. But uh, the compensation is you have three of these victory point counters and there's this vast array of different end game goals. And so when you place a foundation tile, you either put out a new token of the three you have or you readjust one that you have already out. So it's this odd thing that I'd, I haven't seen in many games where you're in theory, you'd be constantly adjusting. It didn't, it didn't happen that much in our game, but you could be like, Oh, there's no way I'm going to get this. And you have to adjust it again. And then someone would move out of the top spot. And now you can move into it. You'd have to, you know, put a foundation tile in so you could, you know, move back into the top. And so that was kind of new and interesting. And there's all these different villager cards. So, cause if you cover a village, you can pick a villager card that, you know, increase your actions. You get them. If you get potatoes, you get more potatoes or more money or different bonuses. In all, it is a great family game. Says so right on the box. This is by Lookout Games. I would suggest it to anyone that's looking for a new, interesting, and fun gateway game. Super fun to play. Great components. And wooden llamas love it. On the topic of Thomas Lehman...
1: I get to play Res Arcana, Perle Imperii. This is the second expansion to Res Arcana, the super minimalistic tableau builder from Thomas Lehman, who is a man who definitely knows his way around a tableau builder. That is for certain. And Perle Imperii, as you might imagine from the title, adds pearls, pearls of power, Walker, powerful pearls for Walker in Perle Imperii. Is this
0: like the super new expansion or is this just the, the first expansion that came out?
1: It is the newest expansion. The first expansion was Luxet Tenebrae, and the second expansion is Perle Imperii. He loves his Latin, he's at least being consistent. And it really does supercharge the game to a certain extent because now you're not playing to 10 points, you're playing to 13, and yet the game doesn't last any longer. Just pearls give you substantially more options and substantially more accelerated point generation. So it has new places of power, new artifacts, new. Monuments, All the things you would expect, expect from a yet more stuff expansion. There are a couple of additional rules that are introduced by virtue of the pearls but they're incredibly simple and easy to remember so this is not the kind of thing where you have to worry about edge cases introduced by inconsistent iconography introduced in previous sets so as to make it compatible with the new sets. I would not regard it, however, as essential if you're it's the standard sort of yet more stuff expansion. If you're a huge fan of Rezarcana, then you're probably going to want all the stuff. If you're a little bit tired of the existing things in Rezarcana because you played it so much, then yes, more stuff is helpful as an occasional enthusiast of Rezarcana. I have to say that I still haven't really plumbed the depths of the base game and the first expansion yet, so it is not what I would consider a must-acquire. And when it comes to Thomas Lehman Tableau Builders, I'm probably a bigger fan of Race for the Galaxy anyway. This is not to slight Pearly Imperii. I thought it was an excellent example of a yet-more-stuff expansion. So if you're a huge Resarcana fan, by all means, go seek it out. Otherwise, I am happy with the level of Arcana that I have. So that is Resarcana Pearly Imperii by Thomas Lehman, put up by Sandcastle Games of 2021.
0: So Khan is also on board game arena so I've played it a few times in the last couple weeks you hated it when I introduced it to you yeah I, I didn't enjoy it that much either on board I think it is a game that really is better in person because when you're cycling through especially well in if you're if I was playing it live mm-hmm. on board game arena like back and forth it probably wouldn't be so bad but because you know you're cycling through all your other turns and you sort of say oh it's my turn I'll do this and this you're not you're not actually like looking through the log and seeing what the other players did. You're not seeing where this, you know, dragon hurt you from because it's like, whatever, I'll just take my turn and you're not compensating for what's going on. I just think I need to pay more attention. Yes, but I think it's just a game that plays better in person in real life. Well, I would say that about every game, but sure. So we are be getting Louis out of the house and playing games in person And so we put Feim back on the table. This is a Friedman Freeze game that I will keep forevers. Put out by 2F Spiel. And I've talked about it many times. So I won't talk about it for too long. It's a game where you're manipulating your discard pile. As you discard cards, they have to stay in a certain order. And after you play out your hand, you get a certain number of cards back from the top of your discard pile. And then you get to buy some more back into your hand. And then you're also deck building. You're also acquiring new cards. So you're either trying to somehow get rid of cards out of your hand. So they're going to your discard pile first or just play them first and then get into the actions that you actually want and just cycle those over and over again and then it has a very interesting end game mechanic where once these uh plagues come out these catastrophes you sort of have to time when you're going to cycle your cards because once all four are out then you cannot pick up your cards anymore so you only get to play what's left in your hand or cards that you buy and so you need to make sure you have several combos set up you can't just keep you just can't have one good combo because a usually you're going to deplete the resources that are on the board or or b like i said you're if you only have the one big combo when you have like those cards in your hand you're just going to play it once and then you can't refresh your cards anymore so you need several so and make sure you time it that you have them all ready to go and then just play them all out in the last turn type thing i really enjoy fam has very minimalistic sort of look to it it just Lens to the feel of the game, and this last game we played, Mark, it was very odd. It's like the last, like have, like every game I've played so far has had a small sense of sameness. You know, you get the veteran farmers, you get, you know, the rows. Just had they all had the same feel. This was like it was almost like we had like some sort of expansion deck in there. It's like you know we're like looking up cards. Like, have we even seen this card before? Huh. And it just felt so new. And, and there was like two, even Huey was commenting on the fact that. The deck was completely different this time, and there, there was cards and in the, the order that they came out, and it gave the game a completely fresh feel. And uh, I'll play it any time. This is Fayum by Friedman Freeze. So I had the opportunity during my break to get
1: together with some old friends, and indeed, remembering what it was like to be with friends was an important part of the break. And so we got to play some old favorites, like Race for the Galaxy, Race of the Galaxy remains my favorite tableau builder, unmatched, but also some new favorites. And whenever it is time for me to introduce people to some new favorites, I, of course, pull out Regicide. Not just because it's in my purse, but because it continues to win friends wherever we go. So, waiting outside to pick up some food from a restaurant? Play Regicide. Looking to earn some gamer cred with people who want to know what the new hotness is? Play Regicide. Want to have some good time, generally? Play Regicide. So, played a whole bunch of Regicide. Still haven't won. Please shut up about it, everyone. No, stop, Walker. I can tell Walker's about to say something. Walker, don't. Don't. Don't.
0: Thank you, Walker. <laughs> <laughs> that is registered by Paul Abrahams, Luke Badger, and Andy Richdale. Badgers from Mars. Mark, I finally got Dinosaur World in. And this is so if people have played Dinosaur Island. It was a grandiose game with tons of dinosaurs. This is sort of like its sister game or sort of like a re organized, redesigned sort of implementation of that game. And what you're doing is that you have three major phases. You sort of have a public phase where everyone's trying to make their dinosaur park bigger. You're buying attractions, you're buying markets, you're putting them on your board. And then you have a private phase where you're you're putting your workers out and you're getting money and you're increasing your security and you're doing stuff on your own board. And then you have a... Oh my! I'm gonna say this word market. It makes me cringe every time I say it. You have a jeeple phase. What? Jeeple? You know, like you have a meeple, but this is a jeep. So it's a freaking jeeple. Wow, that's an abomination. I know. Anyway, so you 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 drive your jeeple around your park. Uh-huh. It, whatever the jeep drives through, it activates those buildings. So it has some. Very good things. Needless to say, we played this several times over the last two weeks, and I really enjoy this game. It is super fun. But that being said, things that are interesting, Mark, uh, at the beginning of each round, you're flipping over these cards, and it's going to give you all of these different color meeples that you're going to draft. And there's going to be four white ones, which are just generic workers. And there's going to be other ones that are security, scientist, administration, and purple uh like a mechanic for your your jeep garage and though and all those meeples will get certain bonuses depending on where you use them and so you have to sort of you know uh space them out and you need them in all the phases right in the public phase they have to, you have to use some to get some buildings in your public phase you have to put them on your on your uh own personal buildings and in the cheaple phase, some of the buildings actually require certain meeples to activate. So you, you sort of have to plan it everything out. So that's very interesting. But I really feel when they were play testing, they felt as though some people were getting, uh, like combos, like, like you would in fayum and they were just working those combos over and over again because now every tile in your park has what they call a boredom level. <laughs> That's definitely what you need to put in every board game. you got to put in a boredom level. I know. So this is what you have to do. When you activate a building, it starts off at zero. So you add up your excitement and you subtract zero because it's the first time and you're going to get that much excitement, which is going to get you a certain amount of income. And then you put a token on it that has a one. So the next time you use it, it is excitement minus one, and then excitement minus two, and so on and so forth. And the tokens they give you are these little, like, three mil numbered tokens. <laughs> so those are meatly thrown in the garbage and we're using white dice. It can only go up to five, but I mean, it's just this, it's just this constant. It's like, oh, do I remember to p- increase the boredom there? And you're like clicking dice and you're trying to keep track of all this boredom. But overall. <laughs> now it's time to tally your excitement level. Yay. <laughs> Yay. But it's this, it has everything dinosaur Island had except for the hooligans but it had it had the same sort of thing, you know, keep your security as much as your threat, had all the interesting dinosaurs, had the really funny sights like the, you know, the Tyrannosaurus jet ski, and it had the, the Velociraptor dining experience, and had all these like hilarious buildings, and uh, super fun to play, would play at any time. There's lots of expansions as well, which added that extra layer, because I was talking about Uh, What was it? We were playing Brew and I thought it was, you know, very one dimensional, which had more. I'm glad I just jumped in with all the expansions with uh, Dinosaur World because it adds that extra layer. If you didn't have it, it would be kind of bland, like the Ice Age really uh locks down where you should put the tiles because normally then otherwise you're just, you know, it doesn't really matter where you put the tiles. All you're worried about is making sure your Jeep can hit the ones you want. But now with the Ice Age ones, you're going to get end game scoring depending on what's around it. And then you have, there's a water expansion that adds algae. So you're constantly trying to clean these <laughs> damn water things because all this algae is building up. And then there's the, uh like the genetic one where you're making these weird mutations where you're like merging two, uh, dinosaurs together, kind of. So it's this huge payoff, you know, with excitement and money and stuff. But then, you know, you know, uh, lots of death.
1: <laughs> Question: Would you ever go back to Dinosaur Island, or do you think the Dinosaur World is just flatly better?
0: It's just f- it is flatly better. It they've they've you know smoothed out all the kinks, a lot quicker to set up, a lot quicker to play, a lot of you know it's it's just you know made a lot smoother for sure. Glad to hear. Gives you the same feel and a lot tighter, you know, more decision spaces, more rounded out. And that is dinosaur world. This is designed by Brian Lewis, David McGregor, Marcia Masura, and put out by Pandasaurus games. As part of my ongoing character growth
1: of trying not to be completionist about every damn thing. I commented that I was not going to go into the new too many bones Kickstarter for the new material. And, Nonetheless, I was in a context where somebody already had all all the previously released Too Many Bones material, but not yet played it. And there were a number of pejorative comments made about the rulebook, and one of the great things, again, about visiting friends is I can teach them the game because I'm familiar with it. And I have a bit of a mental block with Too Many Bones in a number of ways, because the length of the game can be variable in the extreme, because when you're playing Too Many Bones, it's all driven by the encounters, and one of the great things about the system is the encounter variety. Sometimes it's just going to be a straight normal encounter where you have the normal expected number of adversaries. Sometimes the number of adversaries is tweaked a little bit and the rewards are either tweaked up or down depending. Sometimes it's just going to be a straight text encounter where you make a decision and get rewards or penalties as according. Sometimes you'll play a dexterity game. Who knows? There could be a number of things that happen. The problem is that if you're playing with more than two players, most of my games of Too Many Bones have been with two players. If you're playing with three or four, as was the case in this playing, you never really know how long the game is going to be. Because... You can choose your boss based on an expected duration, but that just tells you how many progress points you need before you can challenge the endgame boss. It doesn't tell you what proportion of encounters you're going to have are going to be combat encounters versus wacky dexterity game encounters. And for me, the ideal playing of Too Many Bones rests on having a balance between straight combat encounters, maybe a couple of tweaked combat encounters, and then... Maybe some proportion, probably lower than the straight combat encounters, but some proportion of wacky dexterity games and or goofy things that happen, both for the sake of variety and also because it just means you won't have to worry about the length too much, because after a certain amount of time, you're just manipulating chips, setting out a whole bunch of baddies, and it can get a little bit tiresome. And I have to say, this last session I played was just about perfect in terms of the proportion of everything. We played a three-player game with new players, and then it was over in ninety minutes. I was amazed. Partially, it was because of the people I was playing with, and they caught on very, very quickly. But also because I felt that the encounters worked just well. And I appreciate the fact that the, like any other adventure game system, the encounter structure is very, very flexible. But sometimes that means you're just going to get a series of combat encounters, and it's going to feel like a little bit of a grind because day seven feels exactly like day six. And sometimes you're going to see some of the more interesting cards. And I really feel like in this particular case, it worked out well. I wish there was some kind of way to curate things. I
0: suspect this would get us into the dreaded app integration arena. Well, that I was just thinking you could just do the same thing I do with catacombs, right? Just curate it yourself, give you a set of, you know, say maybe, if you feel the game should be like five scenario, you get five cards, definitely set up, and then just randomize the rest. It's like, okay, this will give us a nice variety, and then if we still think we're not ready for the boss, then we can start drawing randomly off the deck as normal, and then go from there.
1: Why you got to blame the victim walker?
0: I don't know, Mark. Why you got to put this all on me? It's usually your fault, Mark, and you know it.
1: If there were some system whereby you could just divide up the cards into decks these are these are combat encounters these are non combat encounters and then determine your your level of mix that would work out fine that would require that i sort through all the cards walker and i've got better things to do like shout into a can with you
0: so so true
1: anyway that was too many bones by adam and josh carlson and chip theory games put out in 2017 still a big fan of the
0: system not necessarily enough of a fan to mortgage my house to get yet more too many bones so we played sentinels of the multiverse on stream and because the great obelisk was down in the gaming area, it got played a bunch of times. Just have to say that Settles Multiverse is still doing it for me. Still a great card superhero game. Even the new people that were introduced to it enjoyed it very much. We even lost Mark. We lost the first game. We lost... Oh, against who? It was one. It was, uh, we just did, it was just a Baron Blade fight. You lost against Baron Blade? Yes. It was, it was just the one, it was a one turn thing. We got, it was a bad, bad combination of things happening as it does in these games. It was down to if we had one more turn, it would have been defeated, but it was just at the very last second. Same thing with the second game. Uh, We played against the Dreamer and we picked a terrible. Uh, environment for that particular fight. Oh, sure. And it w- it was just down to if we hadn't done this last bit of damage, then we would have lost. The Dreamer is very environment dependent. Yeah, it's super fun. Just so people know, like the- each villain is so different. Like the Dreamer has six hit points, but you don't want to attack her. She just invokes all these crazy dreams and manifests them into reality, and, and you have to fight them, and you have to be very careful about. You doing area of effect damage because you a lot of people have abilities that say all targets. And when you, yes, so you have to, sometimes in that particular fight, you need to curate the environment deck. You don't want ones that, uh, an environment deck that has a lot of AOE damage because in that particular case, you wouldn't have a chance whatsoever. But anyway, so much different variety and the fact that somehow it, you know, limps into working is amazing. Sentinels of the Multiverse, put out by Greater Than Games. That's
1: a great segue, because it's very much like Too Many Bones. I really like Too Many Bones. Too Many Bones is less fragile than Sentinels of the Multiverse. That is for certain. But sometimes these games rely on the proper either encounter mix in the case of Too Many Bones, or the right villain environment mix in the case of Sentinels of the Multiverse. I'm not going to say that there are some combinations for Sentinels that are unplayable, but there are certainly some combinations that are markedly less good, less enjoyable, and or more janky than others. That's for certain. Played another game of Ankh, Gods of Egypt, on the topic of games that kind of sort of almost feel like Knizia games. Played a two-player game of Ankh, and it really is a game of tempo. I adore Ankh, Gods of Egypt. We've talked about this before, but for all the Eric Lang asymmetry and for all the cool me are not overproduction and variety that you're going to get out of this package, the tempo manipulation is very subtle and very, very good, and despite the fact that it's subtle and allows for experience to triumph over inexperience and for really room for clever plays, it's immediately evident. It's not one of those things where it's like, oh, five turns in, I'm suddenly realizing that a while back I already lost things, mentioning no train games in particular. This was a case where it was... Immediately evident from the get-go, this was this was Dr. Handsome, having, never having played it before, but he very much appreciated it. And there was this jockeying between action efficiency and triggering the events, which is one of the key trade-offs in playing Ankh. Do you want to take the action you want to take for your board position, or do you want to try to manipulate the event track? And for the early game, it was fascinating, because I was triggering all the events, but Dr. Hanson was taking all the good actions. As a consequence, he was getting more points than I was, but I was building a framework for what happened later on. Something changed near the mid-game where suddenly I was getting both ...the events that I needed to trigger, and I was also being able to take the actions that I wanted to take. And from then on, that was pretty much the turning point of the game. Not leveraging special powers, although that certainly mattered. Not mastering subtle implications of weird game interactions, although there was certainly some of that as well. But just this fundamental tempo manipulation of the action selection... I had a strong intuition that Dr. Handsome was going to appreciate that element of the game, if nothing else, but it went over very, very, very well. A great time was had by both of us. And the fact that Ankh scales so well is really one of the underappreciated aspects of it. I mean, you see people on the forum asking, Oh, you know, can I play blood rage with two? Could, can I play rising sun with three? It's like, well, yeah, I could, I guess if you really wanted to, but, not that they're, not that Ankh obsoletes those games, but it really is great when this kind of system is able to scale as well as it does. And I think that that is absolutely one of the many positive aspects of Ankh, Gods of Egypt. And I was very happy to get it to the table again. This is by Eric Lang and Simon, published this year, 2021.
0: So, Mark, I finally got my four science. So I made diseases with cards and then I stacked wooden colored blocks.
1: You're lying to me, aren't you? Shut up. You, you didn't get for science at all. Damn it. <laughs> I also played for science while I was on the road. And one of the comments. I hate you so much. Well, look, one of the comments was, this is great. I really need to get my
0: own copy. To which I shrugged and said, eh, good luck. Played the new Micro Macro. This is put out by Pegger Spiel. Just more of the same. There's not much to say about the new Micro Macro Full House. And uh, it has... The only thing that is different is that they aged some of the missions, so you'll know if they're child-friendly or not. Other than that, more of the same great micro-macro.
1: Yeah, keep in mind, when we say more of the same, you really have to worry about the context dependency. When we say more of the same micro-macro, we mean it is yet more awesomeness. It's true. I also played more micro-macro Full House while on the road. Again very hard to explain what makes it so great. I keep trying different ways of explaining its genius, but really when the game only takes three minutes and you literally don't even have to offer a rules explanation, all you need to do is just spread out the map, pull out the first card of the case and ask the question and you're already playing the game. So I think I'm just going to stop. People can say, what's this game? I'm just going to say nothing, open the box, spread out the map and pull out a card. That's what I'm going to do from now on.
0: I agree. We went back to Korra going to talk about only because it's nice to know that we go back to the games that we reviewed already it was asked to be played this is a game that was given to us as a review copy from yellow and i really enjoy how all the different factions that you play a different game and how you need to you know look at your political cards versus your faction and come up with what kind of you know strategy you're going to go with that game this is a, a game where i brought the tax level up to maximum i've never even come close to that in any of the games so it was super fun to play it in different ways cora the tracks on tracks that has a track game lastly for me feast for odin on board game arena is amazing we've played it a few times i'm really hoping the expansion will be out for it soon they've done a great job on this the like the very first game of like the 15 that i've played in the last couple weeks had a bug but was quickly fixed because that's when it first came out and now every game has been flawless super fun it 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 leans into that being able to play it asynchronous because there is not a lot of player in action but you get a lot done during your turn it's worker placement you You know, take your worker. It allows you to place the shapes on your board when it's not your turn, and you can save it so it's ready to go for your next turn. They did a fantastic job. If you ever want to try Feast for Odin, check out Board Game Arena. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Hey, Walker, what do you call an entity that
1: should be dead but keeps shambling around?
0: A zombie?
1: No, but close. I was thinking of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But as it so happens, the two will finally be joined together. Marvel Zombicide, the product that will definitely make money, but that no
0: one should have asked for. Oh Mark, will this ever stop? Well why why would it stop? Yeah. When they make so much money out of they put zombicide on anything and they make millions. Why would they stop? Part of me is
1: secretly happy. Because I know that it is only a matter of time before they exhaust every possible avenue, leading to the inevitable triumphant arrival of
0: zombie bees. It's so true. Well, what I'm also opening is this because we know Evil Knievel is a hero. They need to make Evil Knievel, and they need to make a zombie shark, and they need to have a ramp, <laughs> and that would be the ultimate game ever. You've sold me. I'm convinced. Zombie Knievel can jump the zombie shark, and we can be done with this. Marvel Zombicide, look for it at a Kickstarter near you. The last bit of news for me is that this December is going to be the 20th anniversary of Lord of the Rings. So Games Workshop is going back You mean back the movies, to... right? Yes.
1: Okay. Because I, I, I think Lord of the Rings predates the movies by some number
0: of years. You said 20 so years. True. I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> 20 years for the movies. Okay. So- uh, Games Workshop is putting out a box set called The Battle in Balin's Tomb. It's going to have 22 miniatures in it, including all nine of the Fellowship and a giant troll, and you get to reenact the battle they had in the tomb. I played the old uh, Lord of the Rings skirmish system a few times. I think they've tweaked it up since then. So it's nice to have like everything you need in one box. I'm going to have to go through my uh, cases. I think I even have... The fellowship all painted and ready to go. And if that's the case, maybe I will look into this. Battle in Balin's Tomb.
1: On the topic of Games Workshop, you probably have seen this in the news because it actually broke into mainstream news in a number of ways. At a Warhammer 40,000 tournament in Spain, there was a kerfuffle involving a participant who showed up wearing Nazi imagery on his clothing. And the Spanish organizers did not eject the individual from the event, even after a couple of his opponents refused to play him and thereby forfeited their actual rounds. The Spanish organizers, in their defense, argued that it's not against Spanish law to display Nazi imagery, and therefore their hands were tied. This defense, of course, is nonsense— Because the organizers had a code of conduct that gave them the right to expel or bar participants for certain forms of antisocial behavior. And I think that if you're not willing to invoke that code of conduct in the context of showing Nazi imagery, I think your priorities are seriously misplaced. Just as a general note, this is the classic kind of canard misdirection or nonsense defense that a number of people advocate. It's like, oh, well, it didn't break any laws and therefore we couldn't do anything. Look, you are a game store. You're not a law enforcement agency. I'm not suggesting that this participant ought to have put in jail, Nobody is, or at least not, certainly nobody that we would agree with. The point is, is that you can erect the kind of environment you want to have, and you get to communicate what your values are. And if your value that you wish to communicate is that you're not willing to go one step beyond what criminal law mandates, then you're not creating a welcoming environment for gamers, and therefore you're not doing the hobby, or any hobby, any favors whatsoever. You have to use whatever power and whatever discretion you have to make gaming a safe and welcoming environment for people who are not advocating for genocide and or fascism on that topic before I get to games workshop because games workshop deserves its plaudits here games workshop is not responsible for this but I will give them say a little bit of an assist because I'm not going to say that games workshop produ- uh, products make people Nazis but it is definitely more friendly to fascists than it needs to be we're talking about a, a, a universe in which originally all the factions were meant to be satirical there were not supposed to be any good guys. In the grimdark of the future, there are only bad guys. But over the course of the years, I can't help but notice, as an outside observer to the Games Workshop offerings, that more and more the Space Marines and the Imperium of Man, that's what it's called, the Imperium of Man, is kind of sort of the good guy default sort of faction. It's very much the protagonist faction. You look at the movies, you look at the novels, you look at the product offerings and all these things. And we are talking about a faction that is... Defined by power worship, hyper-militarism, xenophobia, eugenics, a whole bunch of skull imagery. And of course, it certainly doesn't hurt that the characters are overwhelmingly white and male. And so Games Workshop, this is kind of the bed you've made for yourself. You try to pretend as though, oh no, 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 it's all satirical, we don't actually believe, well... I don't think you get to claim that given how you've presented a lot of the Space Marines over the course of a lot of offerings. I think you have a bit of a fascism problem. Most elements of Western culture do have a bit of a fascism problem. But in the case of Games Workshop, I think you have your work cut out for you very much like some corners of World War II historical wargaming, have similar problems, but for perhaps more obvious reasons. Now, to give Games Workshop credit, they have been on a media blitz, making it very, very clear that when it comes to Nazis, they don't want their money, they don't want their participation, and they don't, as far as they're concerned, they have no place in the hobby, and Games Workshop has pushed back hard on the organizers of this one particular tournament, saying that they made the wrong call, and in future, anyone who is showing up with imagery like that, or with any talk of anything like that, needs to be bounced from that event with all available discretion. So kudos to them for their response. I look forward to their backing this up with more actions in the future. And suffice to say, once again, if you have power, if you have any kind of responsibility, be conscious of the environment you're making. It is your job to make sure that vulnerable populations are safe and welcome, no matter
0: what the form of gaming. So, But that's a great segue as to that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Making something interesting and welcoming, much like an all-day gaming event. Mark,
1: <laughs> I, I I miss event gaming, Walker. I miss it so much.
0: I I when you suggested it, I wasn't. I had to look it up on the internet to see what you meant.
1: <laughs> can Can I start with something actually? So okay. So when I think of event gaming, I think of you know that 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 environment where you decide to play a particular kind of thing, whether a specific game or a particular kind of game. You invite people over. You've got kind of an uh, 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 of, of an agenda or an itinerary, maybe. Maybe you've got a special venue. Maybe it's a normal venue. Who cares? But one of the things that I love about event gaming that I miss so much is I love giving a game room to breathe. Because if you get people together for just pickup games, and don't get me wrong, I love getting people together for pickup pick games, something in my lizard brain starts worrying about efficiency. I realize this is perverse, but we talk a lot about when games feel overlong. If a game is quote-unquote supposed to last 45 minutes and it stretches on in the minute 60 or 75 or something, that starts to bother me. But if you tell me that we're going to get together and we're going to play Game X, that's all we're going to do, we're going to get together, we're going to play Civilization, we're going to play Successors, we're going to play whatever, that's all we're going to do, Part of me just shuts that worrying part of my mind off, and I don't care how long it takes because this is all we're doing. Want to take a fifteen-minute break between rounds three and four? That's cool. Let's go. Let's go talk about the stock market or whatever the heck over in the kitchen. That's all right. Ain't no thing. Do you do you ever have this experience, or am I alone?
0: No, no, I have the same. I have the same thing written here. Where it's more, it's more than just the game. It's the, the entire day. You know, there's going to be a meal. There's going to be relaxing. There's just going to be. There's no time pressure. You can just sit and 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 do your own thing.
1: Do you have any explanation for why I, in particular, have this weird kind of emphasis on efficiency in some contexts, but the moment it's a specific event game, I'm like, eh, whatever.
0: Well, I think it goes to my first, my first point, where time is a commodity. You know that everyone's time is precious to them, and so when it's just normal pickup time, normal pickup game you realize that you know some people are under time constraints they thought this game was going to take a certain amount of time and it's not so you're just it's like okay this is obviously going on too long and someone might need to go somewhere maybe they want to play another game after this just all these things are you know always on the top of your head fair point so that's what i have why are these games fun to me because because people are making that commitment right it's Mm. it's It is not an easy thing for someone to put aside an entire day to play a board game. Or even half a day. Or even half a day. And when someone makes that commitment, that you know that they're in the same headspace as you. It's like, we're doing this. We're there to have fun. This is happening. Nothing else is going to get in the way. And that's what makes it fun.
1: That's a good point. I completely underestimated that aspect of the shared communal buy-in. The idea that everyone knows what's going on. Like if if people get together for random games, there's always this sort of leap of faith when you're suggesting something. And if it goes badly or people don't enjoy it, you know, you feel responsible or some other people at the table feel somewhat guilty. But if everyone's there because they've planned for a specific thing, there's that automatic sense of buy-in. There's that automatic sense that everyone's on the same page. And so you can just relax and accept the fact that everyone's there of their own volition. You don't feel like you've imposed anything on anyone even though in many cases you really have.
0: (laughs) And sort of, I want to segue. It's my, it was my last point, but I want to put in there where you said, you know, where things aren't going right. You know, you feel bad, but that's what you have to make sure. If you do have an, uh, an all day gaming day, you have to, and you're the host, you have to be strong the whole time. If, if, Mm -hmm. if you have to make sure, you know, the rules, you have to make sure that you have the notion that is, everything is going as planned and, it, this is fun because you have to hold this game together because if, if you seem weak, if you feel <laughs> – if people sense – no, I'm just saying if people sense that things are going badly or something's wrong, then then it will change the whole atmosphere of what's happening. It will suddenly turn into, you know, this is something that's not going well and now I'm going to be here all day experiencing this thing that is not going well.
1: I just spent a fair amount of time ranting against power worship in gaming and here you are saying that it is your responsibility to be strong and project strength. And if there's any weakness that people that, that that society will crumble, uh, why are you turning us into crypto fascists Walker? (laughs) (laughs) I, I have the opposite. Actually, there are a few things more satisfying. There's only so much drama you can get by storming out, but when it's your place, and you flip the table and you insist that everyone else leaves. Well then, that's power. It's, yikes. <laughs> that's something. No, no, no. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. When it comes to these kinds of things, if you are the host, there's a certain amount of responsibility and there's a certain amount of communication you need to do, both in terms of communicating the expectations and communicating the rules and also just communicating the right convivial atmosphere. Uh, but that's just true of hosting generally. But you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, and that goes right down to the, like I said earlier, the food plan and having everything sort of set up so people aren't guessing what's going on. Or mm. Is this going to be made available or do I have to bring my own stuff or, you know, just saying, you know, we're doing this from this time to that time. Then we're going to break at this time and just have everything set up so no one's guessing on what's going on. Do, do you know what I used to do, Walker, back in the day when I used to have fun? What did you do, Mark? So I had war councils.
1: I had usually about once a month-ish where some number of people would get together and we'd play almost invariably uh, a war game. Not necessarily, but almost invariably. Things like *I La a Francaise, which isn't really a war game. Successors, Triumph and Tragedy, Here I Stand, stuff like that. And the thing that I did, just as a as a flight of whimsy, but I nonetheless enjoyed it, I made cucumber sandwiches. I would make cucumber sandwiches for people to eat. I just like cucumber sandwiches. And something about it says Hos- hospitality.
0: <laughs> Very fresh and welcoming. Welcome Welcome to my abode. Welcome to my game.
1: Precisely. I don't know what about the juxtaposition of historical wargaming and cucumber sandwiches pleases me so much, but as somebody who, of course, has a great deal of affection for the importance of being earnest and for cucumbers generally, cucumber sandwiches were almost always something that I had uh, during war councils. Haven't had a war council since I left uh, Massachusetts.
0: It's very sad. Very sad. So, on the flip side of you making sure everything is ready and scheduled, you should also make sure that everyone knows exactly what they're in for. Don't just like give them the title of the game and say, this is what we're playing. Be here at eight, make sure they understand the type of game and what that entails. And so they don't get into first turn and realize that this is not something they want to do. (laughs) And now they're sort of trapped there for the rest of the day.
1: Well, part of that is knowing who to invite, right? If you have a, if you're fortunate to have a large group of friends, and you have some notion of what their tastes are, and you're trying to get a specific number of people together, you can, of course, try to invite people that you think are apt to enjoy them. But I I agree with you that it's important to communicate this information. I tend to assume that anybody who's going to commit for a multi-hour social engagement is going to do a little bit of due diligence before accepting it. Like, if I say to somebody, hey, you want to come to a concert with me? It's this band you've never heard of. I expect they're going to look them up, but... That's a false expectation. It's not a legitimate one. Some people are just like, hey, you invited me to a thing. I'm free that time. Yeah, no way, man.
0: Thing. Free tickets. I'm in.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's it's incumbent on the, on the person to, and I've been saying this a lot about lots of different things, right? I have a certain way I process information. I have a certain set of things that I research or acquire information in a certain way.
0: I shouldn't assume that other people do the same thing. And the last sort of point I've got is have a backup plan. Lots of times people don't show up. They say they're coming, that they're not. Maybe have... Uh, know how to scale the game that you have planned. So if you know you have it ready for eight players make sure you have it ready for six and four just be ready to have it for varied numbers or have people on call (laughs) you know say okay this person didn't show up you're in get over here stuff like that.
1: Yeah it's it's why I've never played Virgin Queen Virgin Queen is kind of sort of the pseudo sequel to Here I Stand. I had five other people lined up and then someone bailed on an hour's notice and the problem is, you can play Virgin Queen with five players, but why would you? And at the time, I didn't have any backups available, and so we, we just had to pull the plug. It was sad. It was sad, and it was unfortunate. I have a question for you, Walker. Because I'm ready. I saw this discussed elsewhere, and I'm curious about what your intuition is. So, to my mind, the defining element of event gaming, as opposed to what a lot of other hobby gaming is, is precisely this idea of playing a specific thing at a specific time. Having a plan. That's not the only feature, but to my mind, it's one of the key ones. Say there's an open game night. Maybe you're hosting it, maybe you're not. Where do you stand on making a specific plan with some people to play a specific game at that time? What are the what are the parameters and what are the
0: variables involved that you think are relevant there? So we're we talking about at our local gaming store or at eight, not uh, that makes it seem like I'm actually talking about a specific instance. So at a, at a gaming store, there is a night of gaming that's every Tuesday, say, and people show up and play random open games. But then suddenly, some people show up and say, "We've already organized that we're playing this game with this this number of people." Now, I think that would depend. I think I would I would be weary. I would wonder how many people are showing up to our usual night. Say, if there's like fifteen people, then that would be fine because there's always going to be enough people to play other games. So if this is you are five people that showed up every Tuesday, and it's only the five of you. And every so often, some one or two people would show up and 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 game. Then that would be a no go. You should just you know bring a game, see who shows up, and then divide up. Accordingly, you shouldn't like lock out. It's like, oh, sorry, we had this planned with these five people over here. You know, welcome to the game, the games night. Tough luck.
1: I agree 100%. That is exactly the condition that I think is very salient when going to a public games night at, say, a store or any other kind of event. If there's a healthy population and there's a reliably healthy population, I think that's fine every once in a while. Of course, then it depends. If there's a reliable, healthy population, but Everyone in that population is doing the exact same thing on a regular basis. Well then you get to the you you undermine that pre, that presumption of acceptability. And I think it goes back to your notion of being flexible. Every time that I've done that vaguely antisocial thing of, okay, we specific players are playing the specific thing, albeit at a public venue, I've had backups in mind, right? So it's not just so it's like, well, we're doing our thing. We can't accommodate anybody else. Just go away. You have to accept the fact that when you're in public and maybe using public goods, like in the context of, of a game store or any other kind of public venue, that you might have to roll with whatever happens.
0: Well, before you go on, I just want to do a side note because, because I am a little guilty of that, right? Because when the our local store he, here started their gaming nights, it went on for a few weeks, and I wanted to support that, but I had no idea what was going on there. And I already had a gaming, I think I already had a gaming night at my house that night already. But I said, you know, well, why don't we go down and just play the game that we've been playing here, play it down there, and just see, A, what's going on, and B, sort of not so much boost their numbers but just sort of show our support. Absolutely. But that was that was doing exactly what I said. I was like we were bringing a game there and saying this is the game that we are playing, no one else can play when it's really a, 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 a an open sort of forum but did, space. Did you turn people away? Uh I th- we, get, we definitely I think we gave an air of this is what we are playing. Mm. This, because it was it was a it was a sort of campaign game that we had already started, right? right? It, it was a Pathfinder, you know, Pathfinder the card game. we were already partway into it, so it was sort of we we're just sort of continuing on there, just to so show support.
1: Yeah, and make no mistake, I've done this thing that I'm saying you shouldn't do before. This is a classic example of swag hypocrisy, TM. It also depends on how often you do it, right? This is a question of: Do you do this every single week? How many invitations are you refusing? For people at, a, at another table who want to get numbers, how many? How often are you shoving people away? Like, if you're doing it week after week after week after week, and you're reliably having to turn away, those two sad people who then a, a, have to go and play some two-player game that they weren't necessarily expecting to do when they were going to an open game night, of course that changes things. Context matters, of course. Yeah, like, but
0: Yeah, like I said, that quickly wrapped up. I think it only went on for, like, maybe two weeks, and then we quickly wrapped that up and then just went into open gaming and mixed up with everybody else
1: and when you don't know what you're getting into, of course, that changes, right? When you when it could be a large, healthy population or not, you have to be somewhat flexible and, and expect these things.
0: Exactly, Mark. They're strangers. I didn't know them. They're <laughs> different.
1: It's true. Strangers are bad. Strangers are the worst human beings ever. And there are so many of them. The only addendum that I would issue with respect to uh, a more private uh, game night amongst friends is again, you have to be super flexible. Like if you're planning for a four player only game and you think you're going to have the, uh, the other three players, you can say to them, hey, if nobody else shows up and if all of you do, we can plan to do this thing. But if any of those things don't don't occur, we will of course do something else. And in those cases, though, and I've done this a number of times, in those cases, you have to be flexible, but you also have to be very, very careful about how this information is communicated to that possible fifth person. Nobody wants to feel as though their showing up has ruined anyone's plans. I've seen it a number of times. You show up and be like, oh, Mark's here. Well, we were gonna we we had planned to play this four-player game, but now that Mark's here, we'll uh we'll scramble to do something else. It's like eh. You can make me feel unwelcome because you say I'm an idiot and I talk too much and I and I smell bad. That's fine. I accept all those things.
0: But other than that, come on. Well, how many times have we actually had a game partially set up and that fifth player shows up and it's a sort of like, dump it back <laughs> into the box.
1: Right. <laughs> and in those cases, you should still be gracious. But those cases are usually prompted by people showing up late. And that's fine. If you show up late, you can expect to have there's some sort of transactional friction. But if you show up on time or early and someone's like, oh, I didn't think you were going to be here. We don't like, look, you can try to yeah, have that. Yeah. You can try to have strict RSVP policies. I've tried to do that in the past, But you have to be flexible with these kinds of things. Just as you've been saying, when it comes to event gaming, you can try to make all the plans you want. Something's going to change. Something's going to go wrong. And you have to be able to roll with it in a way that doesn't make your
0: guests feel unwelcome. Yeah, but I've done away with all that, Mark. I now have a calendar system. If people aren't signed up, then I made them feel bad (laughs) that they didn't sign up.
1: Well, that's just it. You have a calendar system. It's all
0: there. All they have to do is put their name in. If but they, they don't s- put their name they in, They still show up, though. Fault. People
1: show up without signing up, or people sign up and don't show up. It happens. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not defending that <laughs> behavior. I'm just saying that you, as the host, have to be able to roll with it, whether it's event gaming or normal gaming. It's true. So, Walker, I, 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 one of the things that, that prompted my suggestion of this topic was your discussion of keepers, about how you weren't going to be keeping many, if any, event games anymore. And I wanted to know if in the near to medium future, if you had a desire to have a specific event game pulled off the shelf,
0: either an existing classic or a new one. I do, for sure. Like I said, I got the War Room. It's been in its box. It hasn't seen the light of day yet. I definitely want to do a War Room game. Same thing with the Game of Thrones. I have the play mat. I'd definitely like to do a, a you know, Game of Thrones. I think can be played in a little quicker. It yes. is a longer game for sure. It's definitely not an all day game though. I don't think, and I definitely would like to play it once on the nice mat. But other than that, I'm always up for diplomacy. But those are the those are the two games I'd really like to get to the table.
1: Game of Thrones is actually a good example. There's a there's a certain category of games in terms of duration that I think are kind of awkward, neither hide nor hair situation, where they're not quite long enough for a full event, but they're probably too long for most normal game events. Game of Thrones, is an example, Clash of Cultures, uh, the old Democker, Argent the Consortium, some of the Mind Clash games, maybe some of the Splatter games, you know, games that are reliably in excess of two hours, but certainly not four. You know, that two to four hour range, I find a very, very awkward play length in some ways.
0: And the other thing I was looking at is that they don't always have to be just one game, right? You could do... You'd say, "Hey, we're gonna do a whole pandemic season one in one day. You sit there and play it over and over again. A bunch of little games. Some people can do that. Sure, I can't do that. (laughs) There's no way. Sure. Same thing with like, you know, other like campaigns, like say an Imperial Assault or or anything. Take your pick. Sure. Hundreds out there. Descent.
1: uh, There are a number of games." either that have been on crowdfunding recently, or I've been hearing rumblings about in development, that are really trying to pitch this sort of mini campaign idea where you play three-ish games and you can knock out a full campaign and they they, they try to have a a a real beginning, middle and end and sense of progression, and you can play multiple campaigns in a game box. And that seems like good fodder for an event game. I haven't seen that any of those systems hit the market yet, but I'm looking forward to their possibility. At least I look forward to seeing them fail. But I, I definitely miss a lot of the games I used to play under the under the category of event gaming. And uh, there's there's a, a number of games that I, I would really like to be able to play over the course of the next you know six months or so. I still haven't played Cataclysm. Which is right up my alley in that it's a series of alternate history what ifs about grand strategic political questions leading up to World War II, Westphalia, which is definitely not the length of an event game, but you need exactly six players, and so definitely falls under the category of event gaming for that reason. And I'm you know I'm always down to play Civilization so long as it's not Advanced Civilization I'll play Civ or, or Mega Civ practically any day of the week. But uh, these are definitely things that I'm going to have to put on hold until such time as uh, my living situation is a little bit more stable. But I miss event gaming. Maybe when I get back to Kingston, I should see if I can gently coax some of you fine locals into slightly more historical wargaming. I don't know. If I can play an 18xx game, maybe you, Walker, can play a multiplayer four-hour consim. There's there's the opportunity for growth. Yeah, you
0: you can dream, Mark. (laughs) That's (laughs) right.
1: (laughs) Oh, <laughs> And with that note of dashed expectations, thank you very much for joining us for So very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email just rolled dice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and sowronggames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! Thank you dear listeners for joining us once again for swag presents mass Piece theater in honor of his grace the reverend dr dr vincent duke of diesel obe esquire this week we have a bit of an addendum in that last week i ranted for approximately seven years about the legend of cora season three and walker was confused walker why were you confused
0: i was confused because the legend of cora got such bad press that i thought it had finished after two seasons and the fact that it was not available on Netflix so i thought it was done at at the the death of the yin and the yang you you heard it right here listeners the show that
1: walker made me watch <laughs> that he that he said i should definitely watch because it was so great and this franchise that he has so much love for he had not seen
0: <laughs> there was a movie just recently where they just went right to We're going to go out in the middle of nowhere and free this prisoner. Whereas in The Legend of Korra Season 3, they waited to the third season to introduce these new characters in the typical fashion. Well, we had these guys hidden away. We just didn't tell you about it (laughs) because... Because they're new and cool. (laughs) Sure. But it had this really weird scene in the end. We won't talk about long since we talked about it last week already. But it had this really interesting scene, like you said, where they hint at death. Lots of hinting at death. Yeah. But not actually showing it. How about... I'm not sure how mine was edited. But there's this very interesting young lady... The combustion bender, right? ...who shot explosions from her head. And she happened to be fighting... A metal bender, and just before this giant explosion beam came out, the metal bender put a iron mask around her head, and then it sort of panned away, yeah. and you heard a palunking sound. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. I thought I I thought it was just a strangely edited scene, but no, no, she's she's dead. Like it was so weird. Like, yeah, I, I I'm right there with you. The first time I watched it, I'm like, uh, okay, I guess the fight's over. No, 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 totally dead.
0: I am sure it was edited. I'm sure there was footage, and I'm sure Nickelodeon took a look at it and said, mm, no. That could be right, but let me tell you, having done some reading,
1: both in the context of the comics and elsewhere, uh, they, they pull that crap again. That waterbender that, that Mako fights, he kills her. She dies. Yes. We don't, I mean, she gets hit by lightning, sure, but like lots of people get hit by lots of things in this cartoon they just die when the show needs them to die. Like I commented, like the only person who dies in uh, Avatar The Last Airbender is somebody who gets hit by a rock. But we see people get hit by rocks and like flying 75 feet into the air and crash landing into solid ground and then they just get up and dust themselves off like they're wily e. Coyote. And yet somehow in season three, all these people die. It's so weird.
0: Death, time for death. And, like, and, I, and then I totally saw what you were talking about where they... They're trying to imply what the big baddie was trying to do. Yeah. And it seemed as almost the writers weren't sure what they were going to do. It's like, Mm. oh, he tried to do this last time, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, but we stopped him. Like, he did what? And then it wasn't until the very end that they sort of revealed their not-so-exciting plan.
1: Yeah, I mean... It's weird. Specifically, the comment that I had, and this is going to come up again in season four, what we have are somebody wants to kill the Avatar for reasons, and the Avatar fights back and wants to have balance, whatever the heck that happens to mean in the context, for reasons. And the fight scenes are great. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Beautiful animation. But they
0: could have done so much more and they just didn't. I, 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 talked hey, There were some cool parts. Like him infiltrating the airbender temple was cool and sure. All sorts of really cool parts. The all the, all the villains had interesting abilities. Sure. The part about Mako wanting to be a, you know, a metal bender and suddenly becomes a lava bender. Bolin. And, and then there was that very interesting part where we talked about where. We thought, oh, here he goes with the typical, you know, male bravado. And yep. then it, and it, and it ends as quickly. I'm I'm not, this is no joke. I literally paused it and walked away. Cause I thought, oh my God, really we're going this way. And I came back and as soon as I hit on pause, it was just done. It yeah. was like two seconds and thank God they just, they did not go there. Like they usually do.
1: <laughs> given, given that this series, both Avatar and Korra has messed up so many relationships I actually think that the Bolin-Opal uh, relationship isn't bad. Uh, and I agree with you. That thing was so tiresome, the moment he started... So, so, for people who haven't seen the show, it's a classic example of, hey, this girl likes you, and then the dude starts acting like a douchebag. The difference here is the douchebaggery lasts for about six seconds, and then the girl calls him on it, and she's like, why are you acting that way? And he says, I don't know! My brother told me you liked me, and now I don't know what to say! <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, Very Bolin.
1: <laughs> so at least it got resolved quickly. Just going back to the whole issue about the combustion bender dying. I, I did actually, that was one element that I didn't talk about last time. That was one element of season three that I really liked where, and they did set that up where through the entire episode, uh, throughout the entire season rather, Zaheer has been plumbing the depths of uh, wind nomad knowledge and wisdom and it's all about detachment and embracing the void and, and nothingness, which was something that they had touched on briefly when Aang tried to clear his chakras and decided not to because he wanted to maintain his connection with his friends, particularly Katara. But, and so when his, when his lover dies, that was the last thing Zaheer had tying him to the, to the world, and that is when he attains his spiritual enlightenment and is therefore able to fly. So, I thought that was kind of cool, and they would kind of been building towards it over the
0: course of many different plot lines, and so... I... Overall's good. I have not seen four, but we'll have it ready for you next week.
1: I have more complaints about four. Wait for it. Thank you very much for joining us for Spike Presents Masterpiece Theatre, this time where Walker attains enlightenment and Mark complains marginally less. Join us next week. See you then.
0: Peace! Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.